Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kurt Schneider, former CEO of the Harlan Globetrotters, entrepreneur, and host of the Smart Drivel podcast. We will discuss the entertainment industry, his experiences working with lawyers, and his love of gin martinis. So welcome to the show, Kurt. Thank you, Brian. I'm very happy to be here. I'm, I'm delighted to have you on. This is a nice uh, kind of change of pace from some of the other uh, more academic subjects. Academic, this is not. So that's good. <laughs> so <laughs> never fear. So, Kurt, I was wondering um, if, for the benefit of listeners, you could just start by talking a little bit about yourself, your kind of career history, and what you're doing now. Boy, so I certainly fit in the Ipsy Dixit true definition of the phrase, a dogmatic and unproven statement. That sort of sums up my uh, podcast, if nothing else. So um, just a brief background on me. You talked about it. Uh, for nine years, I was CEO of the Harlem Globetrotters. During that time, my record was 3,863 and O. So I was undefeated, never lost. Okay, it was scripted. Shh, don't tell anyone that. Uh, we were around the world putting smiles on faces, and there's nothing better than being able to do that. And uh, before that, I worked at World Wrestling Entertainment. I worked directly for Vince McMahon, the enigmatic and powerful CEO and chairman, which was interesting in and of itself. But it'll take a lot of gin martinis for me to tell you a lot of stories there. And I worked at Disney before that and Fox Sportsnet. So I've been in and around entertainment my whole life. I was an English major in college. So it was sort of a natural progression, I guess. You graduate from college with an English major. What do you do? So in all of these roles you've had over the years, I'm sure you've had a lot of interactions with attorneys, both your own attorneys and maybe attorneys who are representing someone else. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those experiences, sort of what they were like, um, what you found most helpful when you were working with attorneys, and maybe the kinds of things you found less helpful as well. Well, it's interesting. I, I found in my career, the, the more more experienced and more senior I got in my career, the smarter the lawyers seemed to get as well. <laughs> it was interesting because certainly when you are a junior executive, no one really tells you, at least in the businesses I was in, the power of the partnership that can be in an attorney that is on your side. And instead, it almost felt like they were, early in my career, blocking what we were trying to do. Certainly, when I was at Disney, there was a lot of blocking of what you can do and can do with, can you know Mickey hold the American Express credit card? No. And I was on the American Express business trying to, trying to do more with them. So um, in the beginning, I felt, you know, our lawyers more obstacles. And, and as I said, the more senior I got, the more I realized what a powerful tool in business the attorney is, both prophylactically, right, before you're doing a deal or anything, getting the thoughts ahead of time during the deal. And then where they really shine is when, oh, shit, we need your help desperately. Something just happened here, whether it was in this country or that or whatever it was. So um, I found attorneys to be incredibly helpful and insightful 
And the only challenge is when they think they're business people, but that's okay. Are there any particular examples that come to mind of circumstances where an attorney did something or said something that was especially useful or helpful to you as a business person? Well, there's many of them that come to mind, but but there's a couple of examples that I'll talk about now. One is I was doing a deal with the NBA when I was at the Harlem Globetrotters. We were doing a joint venture in China, and the NBA had um, a huge law firm. I'm not going to say which one right now, but a huge law firm on their side. Plus, they had a whole bevy of in-house counsel, and they had all of their their executives they were in the room doing the the uh, the agreement with me and my one lawyer, my outside lawyer. And I, he was an associate, by the way. He wasn't even a partner. And this young man, who's now done a great job out in L.A., we stood our ground against the mighty NBA. And we just drew a line in the sand that we weren't willing to go over. And it worked. And it was a slight legal argument. I can't remember the, the nuance of it, but it was a, a legal argument. Um, likewise. Uh, we had done a joint venture in China with a with a state-owned enterprise in China. And negotiating was quite tough because you'd go and, you'd, and we brought our lawyer with us and you'd negotiate all day. And then we'd go back and talk about what we did. And then the next day, all the terms were changed on us again. So thankfully, the lawyer was there to say, wait a second, you can't change these terms from a legal perspective. Here's what you decided. And it would have been a lot tougher. It would have been more subjective had it just been me and the business guy going back and forth. Mm. Are there are there occasions where you found the advice you were getting unhelpful or the approach that an attorney was taking kind of not advancing the interests of your business or the deal in question? There were a couple of times um, at WWE where, uh, how do I put this delicately? I was trying to push the boundaries, I guess, a little bit of of what we wanted to do. And the lawyers were rightfully so um, cautious, given given how open we were to litigation at WWE. There was always something happening. And the fact that that when I was chief marketing officer and also running international, we tried to push the boundaries quite a bit. And I was never happy with the lawyers holding us back. And sometimes we'd, we'd hash it out and sometimes we'd go to Vince and then he'd make a decision one way or the other and we'd go with it. So yes, of course, it's never, it's never roses. I will tell you another thing. I was running an internet company in, in internet 1.0 and we had great lawyers up there on us, but the problem was, like a lot of people back in the year 2000, after the internet imploded the first time, we were going out of business. We had no money. I was trying to sell the company. I was ducking the landlord because I owed him money. We owed everyone money. And for some reason, the only people we paid 100% on the dollar was the lawyers. Everyone else, we were paying 10 cents on the dollar, 15 cents on the dollar. And, and that sort of struck me that the lawyers were making the money on the way up and they were making the money on the way down 100%. But it is what it is. Well, so as a, as a client, what, what do you think the most important thing for your attorneys is to know, whether that's in-house attorneys or outside attorneys? Yeah, great question. The most important thing for a, an attorney to know which, when you're on your side is to understand what you're trying to accomplish as a businessman. What is the goal from the business? Because what I found is once they get that, they can proffer different ways to get there. 
But some of the junior attorneys are so ready to get their elbows out and say, nope, this is what it is from a legal perspective. But there's an awful lot of creativity in the law. And to understand what the end goal is and to truly get the objectives and to ask the questions of the business people who a lot of times are not willing to explain it or they're just going too fast to say, well, wait a second, what are you trying to do? There could be a different way to get there. And um, so I think that's the most important thing asking what the end goal is to say, what do you guys want to do? How do you want to get there? And are you open to a little creativity to get us there? So when you're working with attorneys as a client, what do you do to get the attorney to the place where you under, they understand what you need? And I guess in addition, like when you're thinking about hiring an attorney, what kind of qualities do you look for? So first of all, I look for a true business partner, right? At the end of the day, a great attorney is not a service provider. They're a business partner. And you don't want to look for someone who can just go in the back and figure out, you know, whatever constitutional law and say, well, Marbury v. Madison, but we'll pull that one out there for you. That was from my 11th grade constitutional law class. Thank you, Mr. Feig. Um, so they're, uh, they're not out there to just pull out a case. But what you look for is, is are they a, a partner and are they a good business person? Does she get what you're trying to do from a business perspective? And if she understands that, then they will be a great lawyer. But using the law is the tool to do the business goal. It's not in and of itself. So if you were going to kind of tell attorneys what they should do in order to get your attention as a business person or the attention of other business people like you, what would be appealing? Like how might attorneys or firms approach you as a potential business partner effectively? Well, so I, I think attorneys by nature are always scanning for danger, always scanning for danger. And that's tough as a business person, right? The, the nature of a lawyer a lot of times is to say, this is what could go wrong. So no, 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 no. Rather, as a business per person, flip the script and say, okay, here are the yeses we can have. Here's what we can do. Then let's look to widen out versus trying to narrow in what you want to accomplish. So I would say, basically trying to come at it right from the get-go of what can we do, not what can't we do. And it's a fairly subtle difference, but it's really important. One thing I'm particularly interested in as primarily an intellectual property scholar is from your perspective as a business executive in the entertainment industry in relation to many different kinds of properties, sort of how did you think about intellectual property related issues, I'm assuming primarily trademark and copyright, maybe right of publicity related issues as well. It's everything. It's everything. IP is the entire, entire everything. People talk brands, people talk brands. No, it all is and starts with your IP. And if that's not protected, you're SOL because anyone can come in and just abscond with, with what you're doing and your positioning. They can abscond with your brand type of, of um, imagery, but they can't get your intellectual property. So it's the most important thing in the world is to get that house in order. So maybe you could talk a little bit then about your work with attorneys in that context. When you were thinking about these intellectual property related assets, how did you use attorneys in that relationship? And what were you looking for them to accomplish for you? Well, first of all, it's it's 
it's funny, it goes against what I was saying before about saying no, but it's protection, right? You want to make sure that that intellectual property is completely protected no matter where you are. It was really tough for us in China because, you know, they, and this is a broad stroke, but there was not a lot of attention being paid. And in fact, in our negotiations with the Globetrotters, they basically said, well, if this goes awry or not, we'll just create the Chinese Globetrotters. You can't do that. Sure we can. So um, that was tough, right? That was really tough. Uh, we also had not only the intellectual property of the brand itself of the Globetrotters, but also each player was their own character. And where that came in was where we had different players and so we had one player and his name was Dizzy and he was terrific and great. Well, we had a falling out with Dizzy. He, he got very upset with the company and he ended up leaving. The way the contract was written by our lawyers, the Globetrotters owned the name Dizzy into perpetuity. That's the intellectual property, not this guy's certain name. So when he left, within about two weeks, we had a different player who was Dizzy. It helped us, the fact that we had a whole warehouse full of Dizzy jerseys we wanted to sell, and Dizzy was this, but Dizzy was the IP, not the person's name. And so that character became ownership of the Harlem Globetrotters. And that was really important. Otherwise, every player could go and just take it with them wherever they go. So did you find working with attorneys helpful in thinking about sort of what intellectual property rights you could effectively claim and how to most effectively leverage them for business purposes? For sure. And and that's why I was talking about the prophylactic view of, of, of how to go about it. Before we did any contracts, we went and we spent a lot of time and say, okay, when I came into the, certainly with the Globetrotters, when I came in, I turned over more than 50% of the roster the first year. We wanted a whole different brand, a whole different way of looking at things. So we created a new template for what the talent agreement would be. It, we wanted it to be more fair to them. So there was actually an opportunity for them to make a lot more money, the better the company did. But in terms of the IP itself, and that's why I actually changed law firms because they had a different law firm that was not an entertainment lawyer. It didn't make sense. They were more of trade. Uh, they were more of a uh, of a um, labor, and we were looking at IP. So we switched it. We switched it to an entertainment law firm because the Globetrotters are entertainment at the end of the day, and we established all the templates before we even signed our first player. And then it went and did it. So it was hugely helpful. So how did you and the organization more broadly think about these kinds of intellectual property related issues at the WWE? And did you find that your experiences at the WWE were helpful in kind of thinking about or rethinking the way the Harlem Globetrotters were? Absolutely. It actually went further back for me. I was first exposed to all this when I was at Disney, right? And Disney is the biggest, fiercest protector of their IP in the world, and as they should be. So, and, and when I was talking about bevy of lawyers, boy, we had a bevy of lawyers at, at, at Disney, but we needed to. So I was first exposed to the power of, of, of protecting your IP at Disney, but at WWE is very similar. And I gave you the example about Dizzy at the Globetrotters. Well, that came directly from Vince and, and WWE. 
Vince owns those characters into perpetuity. He granted to Dwayne Johnson the ability to call himself The Rock after he left WWE. Stone Cold Steve Austin, the same thing. When Stone Cold first left, he was going to do a movie. Well, his name wasn't even Steve Austin. It was Steve something else. And so he could only do the movie as Steve something else. No one wanted Steve something else. They wanted Stone Cold Steve Austin. And, you know, Vince owned the rights to it. So he could either grant it or not or cut a deal with it or whatever it was. So, oh, yeah, I learned an awful lot from how Vince created the IP with his wrestlers, how he crafted the legal documents, how he um, was able to build that IP up and make it a universal love of the IP versus, again, the person himself. And was that helpful in kind of your approach to running the Harlem Globetrotters? Completely. Yes, absolutely. And there were some also some subtle differences. The, the, the um, wrestlers are all contractors for, for a reason. And Vince has all his legal reasons. I did the opposite at the Globetrotters. I made all the players full-time employees and they had healthcare and 401k, but also they had peace of mind and they were, they were one of us. We were all the same. And so that was a subtle difference. But that I learned that from looking at what worked in, in my mind and what didn't work. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Like, why did you anticipate that that was going to be an appropriate decision? Do you think that was specific to the Harlem Globetrotters and that particular franchise or kind of a broader principle? I think it's a broader principle. I think um, in general, there's peace of mind to know that you're a full-time employee there's also the ability to buy a car or a house. It's easier if you have a if you're a full-time employee and you can show that versus a contractor by its nature, right, is is fleeting or could be fleeting. Um, but the reason why I did it with the Globetrotters is when I got there, they had been reduced from the heyday in the 70s to being just a live event touring troupe. And they were just trying to turn the turnstile in your in your arena. So people would come to Cincinnati once a year. And if you heard it on the radio, you got excited, you'd go to the game and then you left. You had to start all again the following year. And so we were only about live events. Therefore, the real year was the domestic tour, December 26th, mid-April. And that was it. And at the end of that year, at the end of in April, even though the fiscal year ended July 31st, they'd have their big end of year party because the tour was over and then they had to start all over again. And when I came in there, my whole vision was we're not a live event touring troupe. We're a global entertainment company and a global entertainment company operates not only globally, but 24, seven, 365. And therefore we want the ability and my whole way, my whole, my whole way in of doing that was to make these players likable, to make them engaged all the time. So you can't just have them play. You need them to be available 365. And the only way to make them available 365 is to make them full-time employees. So that's why we did it. And we, well, I put the guys on Amazing Race. Two of the guys were on Amazing Race three times. We had them on all sorts of different TV shows. And they wouldn't have done that otherwise because they would have either found other jobs because it was off season or whatever they were doing. So this was a way to 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 grow the brand and to grow their brands and to do it in a way that worked for everyone. I mean, it sounds like maybe what you're saying is that as a person running an entertainment business, you need to think more holistically 
about the different potential markets. Especially now and different platforms, right? And who knew that podcasts were going to be so big, right? Five years ago, yes, they were podcasts, but no one knew they were this big. Who knew about streaming? You have to, that's why there's in all those legal agreements, right? Which is, and we used to do this back then when it was about on CD, DVD, and any other format contemplated in you know this land or any lands thereafter. I mean, there's some crazy catch-all language. Um, and one thing I did learn was to read an agreement. And uh, in the beginning, I would gloss over it. You cannot gloss over it because, boy, thank God for the lawyers. There's some small things in there that people put in. And if you don't catch it, it can make a big difference. On your own personal agreements too, my own my own employment agreements, I had to make sure I did that. So, well, so I, I have a question I want to ask you that's kind of personal to my own project, which is, and I, I often teach a seminar class on law and popular culture, and one of the class sessions is devoted to uh, professional wrestling, specifically, what are the rules of professional wrestling? And I put that question to my students because I think it's a hard question to answer. And as someone who's was intimately involved with professional wrestling for a long time, I wonder if you could reflect on what the rules of professional wrestling are. What was that Supreme Court justice on obscenity? I'll know it when I see it. Um, <laughs> justice Stewart. Yes. yes. <laughs> it all comes back to those, those crazy Supreme Court justices. They're so witty. Um, Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I, I say that in fun, but there there are rules. Vince knows them. The wrestlers know them. And God bless them. <laughs> but when you think about, like, what people are doing and why they're doing it, sort of like, how, how do you kind of conceptualize the story or the narrative that's being told in both a kind of narrative sense, but also in, in a business sense. Like when you're thinking about marketing wrestlers, yeah. like how do you tell them or how do you convey to them what kind of story you want to be telling? So I'll do it more specifically with the Globetrotters because they're similar entities and they're both sports entertainment properties. So with the Globetrotters, and again, similar to WWE, we had individual characters that have individual personality traits. Vince calls them baby faces and heels, right? Good guys and bad guys. And then he builds up and he has an arc and sometimes the baby face will turn and becomes a heel and vice versa. But he's famous for saying, look, I don't care if you cheer or you boo, but silence is deadly, right? So you have to do one of the, he wants to create that emotional connection. So with us at the Globetrotters, we would literally write a the script each year for what we wanted the show to be. And it had its permutations through the 90-minute show with the different characters. But we contemplated all the other ways it would be done. So that character, if they're doing something in that show, when he's on or she is on it, because we had female Globetrotters too, is on a TV show, what type of TV shows can they be if they're the bad guy, then they have to be on these type of shows. If they're a sweet person, if they're this or that. So you do have to take all that in and it's a creative process and there's arcs and there's ups and downs. And uh, it's, you know, it's not unlike writing a Greek tragedy, like, you know, Euripides did how many years ago. So things, some things have not changed. 
Well, so you talked a little bit about podcasting earlier, and I know that you yourself are a podcaster. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how and why you got into podcasting, sort of what you saw as the potential benefits of podcasting, and how you went about kind of conceptualizing the show that you created. And I guess one thing I'm especially like wondering or interested in is to what extent is like your approach to podcasting informed by your previous experiences of WWE with the Harlem Globetrotters, et cetera. So doing our podcast, which we do weekly, we release smart drivel every Monday, a new episode at 9 AM is by far the highlight of my week. Um, it is, it is wonderful. It's called Smart Drivel, and I'll get to why it's called that and what we do in a second. So um, as I said, I was an English major. I w- was on the business side of, of, of a lot of entertainment stuff, but always had that huge creative bent in me. And that's why at the Globetrotters, I was very involved with our producer of writing the shows and having fun with it. And I was in a business group called Young Presidents Organization, YPO, which is funny because I'm no longer young nor a president, but that's okay. And... Um, I met this guy, John, who was also in it, and we were at the same um, executive ladder. I was one rung ahead of him chronologically, not, not anything else. And so for three or four years, because of the roles we had, we had to address the chapter all the time. And the two of us would do it in this way, extra extemporaneously, where people thought it was absolutely hysterical. We're looking out and seeing people crying with laughter mostly because John is absolutely hysterical. And everyone always said to us, you guys should do something. And we talked for years about writing a TV show or doing a screenplay, right? That's what you always talk about if you want to be creative. And for about four or five years, we just talked about it every time we had a cocktail, but we never did anything because it was gargantuan to try to do that. It was just too hard. And this fall, I was talking to another friend of ours and I was talking about something and He said, you know, you know an awful little about an awful lot. You should do a podcast. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, forget the screenplay, forget the TV show. Podcast is the absolute perfect arena for what we want to do. So I called John up and I said, we're doing a podcast. He said, fantastic. And within two weeks, we had our first episode out and on the air. No barrier to entry, which is great. Um, we do 25 minute episodes. We talk about tons of different things. Our first one was the history of pi versus pi, pi versus pie, where we meandered off into a discussion on American pie by Don McLean and the invention of, um, the Frisbee because of the Frisbee pie company in New Haven, Connecticut. So we just, we start with something but we certainly meander all over the place and it's been a lot of fun for us. We have tons of different, different um, topics that we come up with every week. Most of them we try to inform and have fun. We try to be informative and have fun with it. Uh, Whether we're telling someone where the word posh came from. I don't know if you know, Brian, where the word posh came from. No. So you know the word posh, of course. So the British are colonizing India. Uh, and if you were part of the aristocracy and you could afford it, the passage was a long boat ride in the hot sun. 
If you could afford it, you could afford the passage where you could be in the shady side of the boat, which happened to be port out starboard home, posh. So we talk about that. We had a one, two episodes. We've had dinner parties. Who would we invite, invite to a dinner party and why? And we could challenge each other uh, to get rid of someone. And the last one, I think we had Dorothy Parker, Babe Ruth, Sacagawea, Winston Churchill, P.T. Barnum, and uh, some man who saved a lot of um, Jews in Poland by pretending that they had a disease. So we have, it's random, it's all over the place, but we have a lot of fun with it. Well, so, so Kurt, in closing, I know that you're a great advocate of the gin martini. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about martinis and why specifically you think that uh, martinis should be made with gin. I, I will preface that by saying I 100% agree with you. Well, I was going to say, is there any other way to make a martini? I, I, I don't know. The, the true martini is a gin martini. Um, by the way, you know what Dorothy Parker said about martinis? I love a martini, two at the most. For three, I'm under the table, and four, I'm under my host. And that was in the 20s, Brian. That was in the 20s when she said that. She was amazing. So I think the gin martini is the perfect cocktail of all time. And when I'm at my home... I only make them in a sterling silver cocktail shaker uh, from 1913. That was my great grandfather's. No other alcohol will touch that or our type of drink. And it's the perfect drink because just the little bit of vermouth. And, and I always shake that, not stirring, because I feel shaking sort of breaks up some of the molecules in the gin and allows the juniper. And I like a London dry gin to have my gin martinis with. And a little bit of vermouth. And you shake it till it gets so cold and you pour it in a glass, which is also cold. And I like a little bit of ice on top, almost so you could maybe see people ice skating or fall through on it. And then you put however you want it, whether it's an olive, an onion. I happen to like the classic peel twist. And it's just, I think it's the perfect cocktail. I might have to have one now. I just described it so much. I got very excited about it. And why do you like them? Uh, I'm the same. I mean, it's a, it really is a perfect cocktail. I, I love them. I'm, I'm kind of an old fashioned man. I'll, I'll admit, but I love a good martini and I always take mine with a twist as well. Oh, they're great. They are just terrific. Well, so Kurt in, in, in closing, closing, uh, I understand that your son is currently a law student. I wonder if you want to give him a quick shout out before we wrap things up. Yes, my son Walker went to your alma mater or is going to your alma mater. He's a 1L at NYU Law School. And uh, he was a history major at Dartmouth. And then he got his master's over in Cambridge, also in history. So he found the first semester of 1L um, quite different than being a history major. And he was not allowed to be as creative with his uh, exposition and narrative as he thought. So he was he had to teach himself and learn how to think differently. And it was a far bigger challenge than he thought. He's in his second semester now and enjoying it much better and um, really, really liking just the thought provocation that comes with not only learning the different sections about law, but also the other people in his law school. He's finding them just fascinating. So um, shout out to all lawyers and to NYU law school grads in particular, Brian, like yourself. Well, great. Kurt, thanks so much for coming on the show and best of luck to Walker in his second semester of law school. 
Thank you. And I hope everyone tunes into Smart Drivel. Uh, it's, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple, wherever you find it. And we our tagline is, we promise the drivel and we hope for the smart. So hopefully the 25 minute long episodes, hopefully you guys will uh, tune in and enjoy it. Oh, okay. 